When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. We've got one hope. All America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. Secret laboratory. Keep everyone there until it's done. Let's go recruit some scientists. And some actors. This week, our favorite film performances of 2023. Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer had a bunch of good ones. Many good performances in Oppenheimer, Josh, two of which appear on the Chicago Film Critics Association final award ballots. We'll share how we voted, plus get into some of our other favorite supporting and lead performances of the year ahead on Film Spotting. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to Film Spotting. Josh, it wasn't our longest episode, but we may have broken the record for most movies reviewed on a single show last week with five. Yeah, I do believe that is a record for us. How was that not a five-hour show, though? That's that's what mystifies yeah. me. Well, you know, we were we were withholding all of our really good stuff for this show and the top ten show next week. We have spent the week in between catching up with as many films as we possibly can. We think we're ready. We're, we're maybe as ready as we're ever going to be for this show. It is our performances of the year. We'll do supporting here at the top, lead performances in the back half of the show, and we'll see what happens in between. This is here, Josh, an annual tradition, though, as we've noted previously, we're doing things a little bit different. Typically, we tape the show just before submitting our first round Chicago Film Critics Association ballots. We float some ideas, get a little feedback from each other. Maybe occasionally even one of us brings up a performance we somehow completely overlooked and we're grateful that we had that opportunity because we haven't voted yet officially. This time, we're taping it not only after submitting our first round ballots, but after submitting our final ballots. 
just after submitting our final ballots. There's no going back. The die is cast. We're either patting each other on the back or we're decrying the other's mediocre choices. No apologies, no regrets. There's nothing we can yes. do about it now. <laughs> By the time people hear this, actually, winners will be announced you can find a link to those winners in the show notes for this episode or by visiting chicagofilmcritics.org. Little bit of setup. Three films did end up with 10 nominations. Killers of the Flower Moon, Oppenheimer, maybe not surprises there. Poor Things, Yorgos Lanthimos, a movie we reviewed last week. I was more favorable on Poor Things than you. I'm guessing it didn't get many of your nominations, Josh. It did end up as one of those three with 10. Yeah, it's one of those that I had to credit it, and this came up in the review, the creativity mm -hmm. of things like production design, costume design, sure. all of those elements I couldn't deny, um, even if I overall had a mixed to positive take on the film. Barbie was just behind those three with nine. May-December, the Todd Haynes film we also talked about last week had seven nominations. Zone of Interest from Jonathan Glazer, not out yet, but both seen by us, got five nominations. Then there were nine other films that garnered between two and four. And I'll say, generally, I can't complain too much about how those ballots came out, at least when it comes to the categories we're going to cover here in all four cases, supporting actor and actress and lead actor and actress, at least three of my top five made those lists. Yeah, I had a fair amount of crossover in the acting categories between what I nominated on that initial ballot and what these final choices were. I got to say, though, and I won't get more into it because we're doing our top 10 next week, the overall best picture choices um, I was not in alignment with uh, many mm. of our fellow Chicago critics this year. Yeah, and I think that may be where we diverge a bit as well. Let's jump in. Supporting actor is up first. The nominees are, in alphabetical order, Ryan Gosling for Barbie, Robert Downey Jr., Oppenheimer, Glenn Howerton for Blackberry, Charles Melton for May-December, and Mark Ruffalo, heavily praised by both of us last week for Poor Things. Where did you diverge from your brethren in the CFCA? Where did you align? Yeah, two of these were on my proposed nomination ballot. Charles Melton, who we went on and on about last week in May, December, and then Ryan Gosling, who was kind of a lock for this, for me at least, as soon as Barbie came out. I get the other ones uh, from the films I've seen, at least, especially Mark Ruffalo, who was just a crazy delight in poor things but i had to make room for a couple of others samuel tice in anatomy of a fall i gave a nod to i think he only has three or so scenes in that movie but each of the scenes he's in is maybe a contender for the scene of that film so i had to give him a nod there and uh, i went with jacob alordi in Priscilla, I'm higher on Priscilla than most and really liked his Elvis. And this one, probably I'm the only person. I'd like to hear from anyone else who's with me here. But I had to go with Donnie Yen in John Wick Chapter 4. That is a performance I think we both liked in the film, Adam, though we split on mm -hmm. it. I liked it much more than you. But the blind killer he plays who's forced to choose between, you know, killing his friend John Wick or saving his daughter – I just thought Yen nailed it in terms of an action performance. Again, how he presented his character's blindness as something he had to account for, not this strange superpower. 
And then the soulful fatigue he brought to the part just made him a great fitting foil for Wick. So, so yeah, I squeezed, um, I squeezed him on there in terms of my nominations. And for my voting, though, you know, you can probably see where I went with Gosling first, and then Charles Melton got my second slot. This category for me was the most ridiculous, which doesn't mean it was necessarily the hardest to pick the winner in. I think we'll get to that category here in a bit. But in terms of the sheer number of supporting actor performances that I loved and that all had a shot at my top five, this category is the one that had the most. I had my top five, and then I have 14 other names I considered including Robert De Niro for Killers of the Flower Moon. Sorry, Bob, you're on the outside looking in, along with Sterling K. Brown for American Fiction, Paul Meskel back delivering the goods Oh yeah, in All of Us Strangers. Wow. Milo Mikado-Grainer, the son, Daniel, in Anatomy of a Fall. I would rate him and his importance to that film higher than the Samuel Teese performance and Donnie Yen was one of those names as well, despite the fact nice. that I didn't I didn't really go for John Wick, as you said, but I love that performance. In terms of how I ended up aligning, it was quite close. I had only one departure, and it's a departure from you, and that's Charles Melton, but it's not because I didn't love the performance. He's he's one of those 14. And not only that, he's he's right there with those other actors I mentioned mm. in the the top tier of my honorable mentions, but otherwise I had Ryan Gosling. I had Robert Downey Jr. Glenn Howerton. I knew was going to be a lock for this category from the moment I saw Blackberry earlier in the year, it was going to be hard to displace him and how much fun that character has. And then I also had Mark Ruffalo on my ballot, how it ended up going in terms of my voting Ruffalo third Downey Jr. Second. And I'm with you. Ryan Gosling, maybe, maybe the overall performance of the year for me in Barbie. And we spent a lot of time talking about Gosling when we reviewed Barbie. I'm going to go back to Robert Downey Jr. for a second, because that's another one where we split. I'll say that when you're making these types of awards picks, it's also arbitrary that a lot of random things can pop into your head. And this is a guy who should be an Oscar winner. He feels like an Oscar winner. And although he should have many more great films, great performances in him. The work here with Nolan is so strong that I somehow worry, or I have it in my mind, that this this might be his last best shot at the Oscar. And I had this in my mind, and then I was looking at the Vanity Fair article, Josh, with Robert Downey Jr. that Anthony Bresnikan wrote. It just came out here on December 3rd. He wrote this, Bresnikan. He wants to play, he says of Downey Jr., but it's also a reminder to keep up, to stay alert. And remember this, whatever this is, our time together is fleeting. Talk to him for any length of time, and it's clear that Downey, who grew up on camera and is now 58, is acutely aware of a ticking clock. There's a countdown happening at all times behind those eyes. In interview after interview over the years, he's often returned to a similar fatalistic theme. Make the most of now, because the end is closer than you think. It's definitely coming someday, maybe soon. Who knows? So I guess maybe it's something he's tapping into as well, or I am somehow getting that same feeling from the universe that Robert Downey Jr. is putting out there. But I want to say, placing him second and really strongly considering him for the first slot, 
isn't about it being ultimately a lifetime achievement award. I think it's a remarkable performance. The slipperiness with which he plays that that political beast, Louis Strauss, and the way he does just sort of drain from him all that over-the-top charisma that we've seen from Downey Jr. over the years. And he still makes him such a compelling character. And I know we we disagree ultimately on how much that that aspect of the film, that side of the film, and it really is a second side of the film, the black and white portion, how effective it is ultimately. It was very effective for me, and that that performance is a big reason why. So I wanted to give him some love here. The fact is no movie character <laughs> brought me more more humor or joy than watching Ryan Gosling, and that's why I've got him at number one. Yeah, he's he's just he's Barbie's secret weapon in a way. I mean, the, the film would have been very good and very funny on its own with a different sort of Ken. But just the way he manages to get a laugh from every gesture, every line reading, everyone he is so game for being the movie's biggest fool. I was, I was just watching the Mojo Dojo Casa House explanation he gives to Barbie when she pulls up today. Um, he's game for just being the absolute idiot in that scene, but believing in the idiocy so sincerely. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think in a movie that is full of laughs, just stockpiled with laughs, that Gosling is probably the funniest element. Ken, this is my dream house. It is my dream house! It's mine! No, this is no longer Barbie's dream house. This shall henceforth be known as Ken's Mojo Dojo Casa House. You don't have to say dojo and house and casa. But you do because it feels good. Try it. Mojo Dojo Casa. Mojo Dojo Casa House. All right, let's move on to Best Supporting Actress. The Chicago Film Critics Association nominees here are Jodie Foster for Nyad. Sandra Huller for The Zone of Interest, Rachel McAdams in Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, Julianne Moore, May, December, and Divine Joy Randolph from The Holdovers. Where'd you go here, Adam? I had a couple departures, only two here. Jodie Foster did not make my initial ballot, though I will confess, at the time of voting, I hadn't yet caught up with Nyad. Now that I've seen it, I understand why she's here. Jodie Foster, beloved actress. I think this is her fifth Oscar nomination, has won twice before for Silence of the Lambs and The Accused. And she she has the really fun part here. Annette Benning is the main character, Nyad, but she's someone who is incredibly selfish, incredibly solipsistic. And Jodie Foster gets to play the character who calls her out on all of her BS. So she's she's the fun one. And that said, there's still a fair amount of depth to that character, Josh. So I get it, though she wouldn't really be in my top 10 or so. Sandra Huller for Zone of Interest, I did have right around number six or seven, but I also knew that she was going to get her due elsewhere on my ballot. Fair so enough. maybe didn't really strongly consider her for that top five. And briefly, I'll mention a few other names that I had in that next tier. Hong Chao for showing up. I really liked Madeline Una Voiles in The Creator and kind of can't imagine what that film would have been without her face. Tilda Swinton, that appearance she makes in The Killer, David Fincher's film, extremely memorable, despite it being really only one scene, two scenes, I suppose, since they do leave the restaurant. And here's another mention for all of us strangers, Claire Foy as the the mother, I think is is really quite good. I was aligned on three of them. And in fact, I had these three as my top three 
on my first ballot. Julianne Moore made December, Divine Joy Randolph for the holdovers, and Rachel McAdams for Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. I did ultimately give my CFCA vote to Rachel McAdams, who I think in a lot of ways is really the the heart and soul of that film and doesn't give a performance that I think screams Oscar. <laughs> it's a decidedly non-showy performance, but it's a decidedly real performance. And I do think that that relationship that she has with her daughter, Margaret, played by Abby Ryder Fortson in that film, is so genuine and so sweet. One of the things I'll always remember really fondly about that film. So I feel good about those top three, but I do want to mention real quick, Josh, the the two that I had in place of Foster and Hula. One of them is Juliette Binoche for a French film called the taste of things where she plays this chef, this incredible chef and lover to the gourmet whose home she works in. But my number one, this is the only category Josh of the four we're covering where the number one on my ballot didn't even make the CFCA final five. And it's Scarlett Johansson for asteroid city. Oh, I love it. That was my, my big oversight in terms of where our colleagues in the CFCA landed the layers to that performance playing one actress and then also playing another actress who's playing the first actress. So much nuance there that she brings to that role. And it's the type of performance that is, as it should be, a little a little theatrical and yet has that emotional weight to it. I looked at IndieWire and their top 30 performances of the year. They had Schwartzman at 23, and I'm on board with that, Josh, but no Scarlett Johansson to be found. And the things they say about his character, I think, transfers so well to her character, where she is someone who really brings that sadness through, heartbreaking character in a lot of ways. And as they say of Schwartzman, a man playing a role, a person struggling to live up to a part, definitely get that sense with her midge as well. Yeah, they're of a piece. I couldn't separate the two of them. If I was going to nominate in my initial ballot one of them, I had to nominate the other. In my overall ranking of performances, I have Scarlett Johansson second in terms of supporting actress for the year. I think she is just incredible. Somehow that that vacant stare she adopts Mm -hmm. while still managing to pierce you somehow and, and do those two things at once. Now, another pairing that I couldn't separate are the two actresses in May, December. And so mm-hmm. my number one above Scarlett Johansson, everyone else by a fair degree here in this category is Julianne Moore from May, December. And just to say a little bit more about what she's doing here, because we we saved some of our observations from our main review last time. But I, I just think it's that dynamic between Portman, Natalie Portman and Moore in this movie that is so electric where the scene, every scene between them sort of shivers with this tension that's very delicate. It's a rare mm-hmm. thing they somehow manage. There's a polite wispiness, but you feel like there could be a sting from one or the other, and you don't know who it's going to come from. You know, these two have agreed, these two characters, Gracie and Elizabeth, have agreed to collaborate and work together. They both have vastly different motivations for doing so. And I think in terms of of Gracie, the character that Moore plays, she's she's dodging Portman's character's questions and sort of doing it politely 
And at the same time, carrying herself as the bigger star, you know, Portman is playing this TV star, but, mm-hmm. but great. It's almost like Portman's character has entered Hollywood is no, and is now interviewing a starlet. So did you always want to be an actress? Always. I wanted to be on Broadway. And when I told my parents I was nine or ten, they were so disappointed. I said, honey, you're so much smarter than that. What did you say? Are you smarter than that? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. So all of that going on in Moore's performance, uh, I did have her both on my nomination ballot and voted for her first uh, in the final ballot. I also voted the other one I had in common here with the final ballot was Divine Joy Randolph in The Holdovers. Uh, we talked in that review uh, about the presence, the crucial presence I think she brings to that film, uh, a bit of a different perspective from the other two characters. And for me, it's that that breakdown, that quiet breakdown she has at the holiday party, listening to The Temptation's Silent Night. It's a devastating moment. Um, and uh, Joy Randolph is good in so other, so many other moments as well. So, yeah, I had a couple different names um, when I nominated things um, here. I went with Danielle Brooks from The Color Purple. Very surprised that the Chicago critics didn't um, put this one on the final ballot because I'm pretty sure it's going to be on the Oscar. She'll she'll get an Oscar nod here. It's the sort of performance that is a powerhouse musical rendition that the Oscars love. But what I liked about it is she she brings that. She's also very funny. And for me, she is the closest that the color purple gets to capturing the combination of rage, resilience, and an exaltation that defines Alice Walker's novel. So I, I think it's an interesting movie, this musical adaptation of the Broadway musical, not always entirely successful, but Danielle Brooks indeed is the standout uh, star in it. And so I nominated her as well. I feel sorry for you to tell you the truth. You remind me of my mama under your husband's thumb. Nah, you under your husband's foot. What he say go. Why you so scared? I never know. But if a man raise his hand, hell no. Hell no. Those are our picks for supporting performances of the year. You can find those picks as well as our lead performance choices over at filmspotting.net. Just click on lists. We'd love to hear your picks or any other comments you have about the show. Feedback at filmspotting.net is the email. Lead performances are to come, but first, a couple of ways you can help the show. If you're a regular listener or even if you're still getting to know us, take a minute and give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Every new rating or review helps us reach new listeners. Another way to support us, join the Film Spotting family. And we're going to start something new here today. We're going to welcome a new Film Spotting family member. We're going to get to know them a little bit. We have put together a Q&A that we're having Film Spotting family members fill out. Now, if you're a Film Spotting family member who hasn't gotten this form to fill out and you're wondering what's the deal, 
we just haven't sent it out to everybody yet. We just put it into place. We sent it out to our new subscribers in the month of November, still have some of those that we have to hit, but we've been getting responses, Josh, and it's a lot of fun to throw some questions at these folks and get to know them a little better. This week, we're going to get to know Moritz from Berlin, Germany a little better. He has been listening since 2007 when he found the show during a search for year-end rankings. How appropriate. His four letterbox favorites currently are Das Boot, Spirited Away, Double Indemnity, and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Not bad. No, there, there's not a miss there so far. Really liking Moritz. Glad he's a member of the family. Doing well. Yeah. And then we threw the the film spotting five or a version of the film spotting five at him. Here were his answers. Last movie he saw in a theater, Anatomy of a Fall. Favorite movie he reviewed recently, re-watched recently was Raiders of the Lost Ark. A random film or filmmaker he loves, one that's still a blind spot for me, Satoshi Khan's Paprika. And the movie he credits for becoming a cinephile, Kurosawa's Rashomon. Loving the anime representation Moritz is bringing here. I can also concur on Paprika. And it's interesting, uh, if someone wants to check that out now and they've recently seen Dream Scenario, the Nicolas Cage sort of high concept movie, Paprika has a similar notion about a character entering people's dreams, how that works. It's a very sci-fi, fantastical, beautifully animated, as you can imagine, if you've seen anything from Satoshi Kon, did Millennium Actress and Tokyo Godfathers, just beautifully envisioned. Um, so yeah, check out Paprika, especially if you've seen Dream Scenario, maybe that, that could be an interesting pairing. You can join Moritz at filmspottingfamily.com and maybe we will get to know you a little better on an upcoming episode. The Film Spotting Family is our membership program that allows you to listen early and ad free. It really is the lifeblood of the show. You also get our weekly newsletter. You get up to date on the 50s madness movie of the week. Hitchcock's Dial M for Murder is up. I'd ask you, Josh, how your 50s blind spot watching is going, but I'm guessing it's going about as well as mine is right now. Yeah. Check with us. Check with us after uh, all this year end list making yes. and voting is done. Yeah. Madness starts late February, early March. And you know what? It's going to have to be next on the list. We got to get through December. Our monthly bonus show in December is some more best of 2023 talk. We'll go through some other categories and our picks on our Chicago Film Critics Association ballots. If you want to hear that, you can become a Film Spotting Family member and access those bonus episodes as well as the complete archive, filmspottingfamily.com. You took a picture of me. Uh-huh. Why? I'm a photographer. You didn't ask permission. I never ask permission. Why not? Because I work in trenches, battlefields, and combat zones. Really? Uh-huh. You mean you're a war photographer? Mostly. There's Scarlett Johansson alongside Jason Schwartzman in Asteroid City. Just another really great Wes Anderson film, Adam, getting overlooked by certain critics groups. We're trying to do our best to correct that. We tried. We tried. We are. Yeah, and there may be some more love coming on this episode and our monthly bonus show. Asteroid City didn't get a lot of love from the CFCA in the major award categories, but we do know, or we have a pretty good feeling, it's going to get some attention next week when we share our top 10 films of 2023. Michael Phillips and Mariah Gates will be back for that fun. Asteroid City 
Josh is also one of the options in the current film spotting poll, asking our listeners, what is, at this moment, your film of 2023? Sadly, Asteroid City, last place in the poll. I mean, kind of hurts, but at the same time, spoiler alert right now, it's not the one I would have voted for if I only got to choose one. So to a degree, I understand. Yeah, I understand as well, especially when you consider how formidable a movie year this was. But you heard it here. Spoilers. Asteroid City, a Wes Anderson film. And I guess he did have other options, but I'm going to spoil it. A Wes Anderson film is not Josh's number one of the year. No, and I'm, I think... I don't know if that's happened in recent years where I have put one at number one, Isle of Dogs, possibly mm. in that year. But yeah, yeah, sometimes sometimes they'll wind up around, you know, in the top five, but something will sail in and knock it out near the end of the year, which is what happened in 2023. It's okay to be on brand, Josh. It's fine. I, I'm just I'm just trying to be true to myself, Adam. You know, if, if I enjoy uh-huh. another movie more in a year, I, I'm going to have to go that way. I'm sorry, Wes. We did want to take a moment to acknowledge the passing of Ryan O'Neill. The actor died this past weekend, 82 years old. A lot of people have talked about his run, Josh, between 70 and 75. Pretty good love story in 70. Got a Best Actor nomination for that. In 72 and 73, he was in What's Up, Doc? and Paper Moon, starring in those films for Peter Bogdanovich. And then in 75, Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. What's Up, Doc? is a film I still have never seen, but love story is fun. I understand why it was the hit that it was. I adore Paper Moon, and honestly, Barry Lyndon's not too far behind it. Yeah, I just saw Paper Moon earlier this year. It might have been for Film Spotting Madness 2023, actually, yeah. that I watched that. Of the 70s. And he's delightful with his daughter, Tatum O'Neill, in that picture, of course. Um, and yeah, the, the Barry Lyndon performance, you know, the, the great debate there is whether He's in on the joke that Kubrick is pulling. Some people will say yes. Some people will say no. Um, that That's one. I'm going to give another pairing here. This is, this is what I'm doing on this show. But watch Barry Lyndon now if you've never seen it. Never take the time for that Kubrick costume epic alongside Napoleon, the Ridley Scott, Joaquin Phoenix film. Because I think they're trying to do something similar to what Kubrick and possibly O'Neill did with Barry London. Well, well, well. You seem to be a very well set up young gentleman, sir. Captain Feeney, that's all the money my mother had in the world. Mightn't I be allowed to keep it? I'm just one step ahead of the law myself. I killed an English officer in a duel and I'm on my way to Dublin till things cool down. Mr. Barry, in my profession, we hear many such stories. Yours is one of the most intriguing and touching I've heard in many weeks. Nevertheless, I'm afraid I cannot grant your request, but I'll tell you what I will do. I will definitely encourage people to check out Barry Lyndon. I'm with you, Josh, if you haven't had that opportunity. Last week, we announced a new contest here on Film Spotting, a tie-in with Fallen Leaves, the latest film from Finnish director Aki Karasmaki, a film we both highly recommended. This is a movie that is in a lot of cities right now, playing in a lot of theaters. It's going to expand further in the coming weeks, so keep an eye out for it. Mubi is offering our listeners a chance to get copies of The World According to Aki Karasmaki, a companion book featuring quotes from the director on life, filmmaking, philosophy, and more alongside film stills. It has an introduction from friend of the show and critic Amy Nicholson. And then there's this, 
Almost All the Dogs of Aki Karasmaki, a postcard pack of artist Nina Slaiko Blom's paintings of the many dogs throughout Karasmaki's filmography. Josh, do you know, have you checked here in storage? Do we have any copies left or did we keep them all for ourselves? I mean, I was strongly hinting last show that I wanted you to slip me a copy of right. the postcard pack, but it hasn't arrived in the mail yet. So I don't know if it's just no. still coming or, or you're being a man of honor and saving it for the listeners. I'm being a man of honor, sadly. Didn't keep one for myself either. We have five of each. That means we have 10 winners. And the way we ran this contest was we said, either write in and tell us your favorite Aki Karasmaki film, or since he was a marathon subject a few years ago here on Film Spotting, watched a couple of films as part of a larger Nordic cinema marathon. We asked just to tell us a favorite film that you've discovered as part of a Film Spotting marathon. Any Film Spotting marathon, there's like 49 of them or something going back to 2005. You could pick any marathon, any movie. I'm happy to say that not only did we get a fair number of responses, Josh, but most of them, as much fun as it is to hear people talk about past marathons and discoveries there, most of the entries, the vast majority of the entries did include favorite Karasmaki picks. So we've got some titles I know we both need to catch up with, and they might be opportunities for discovery for our listeners. Hans Inga Lango selected La Havre, the Karasmaki film that we did do as part of our Nordic Cinema Marathon, Adam. He says it's a wryly funny and profoundly touching little story about displacement that suddenly brings to bear big political questions in a way only the Finnish master could. We had a couple more who chose La Havre. Jalen Ehrman, who said quirky, heartwarming, and memorable. Wade McCormick added, I've only seen two Korosmaki films. Both La Havre and The Other Side of Hope are good. La Havre is my favorite so far, but I'm looking forward to watching more of his work. A couple of picks here for La Vie de Bohème. Emily Ottinger says, I loved it. And Shane Brashear says, from my first Korosmaki, I was hooked. I can't think of another filmmaker who makes movies that are more my thing. If I have to pick a favorite, it's La Vie de Bohème, though I love every single one. Another choice here from Adam Graff in Portland, Maine. I was still a couple marathons away from the Nordic Cinema Marathon before I became a regular film spotting listener. But of the four Aki films I have seen, I like The Match Factory Girl best. Zach Powell says, I discovered Karasmaki this year when Fallen Leaves was announced as part of the TIFF lineup. That's the Toronto International Film Festival. I watched The Match Factory Girl to prepare for the fest and knew quickly that this was a director I was going to watch a lot of going forward. Of the six of his I've seen so far, Ariel was the clear standout with another star turn from frequent Aki collaborator. And here I go. Bear with me, everyone. Maddie Pelinpa, as well as a great lead performance from Turo Payala, who I had never seen before. Spencer Trent is going with Korosmaki's latest. My favorite Aki film, he says, is Fallen Leaves. We get to two more here who went with marathon choices. Josh Joel Carpenter says, I have not watched any Karasmaki films yet. I was introduced to In the Mood for Love from the Wong Kar Wai marathon you guys did. My movie club also watched Happy Together because of the marathon. Thanks for doing what you do. I always obsessively look forward to each Friday for the podcast. Thank you, Joel. One more here from Darren Gunn. I have not seen any Aki movies, but given the enthusiasm, I will. So I'm happy the invitation is opened up to share favorite marathon discoveries. Some marathon titles are genuine discoveries, but most of the ones I end up watching are the ones that have been on my radar for years, but I just needed an excuse to press play. Prior to your Buster Keaton marathon, I had only seen The General. The entire marathon was delight after delight. 
but Sherlock Jr. is absolute perfection and an easy choice for my favorite marathon discovery. Your marathons are among the best parts of the show, and it looks like you've got a great list of potential topics for 2024. Yeah, more on that coming soon. Very excited about what 2024 has in store for us in terms of film spotting marathon discoveries. Here's what I'm going to do, Josh, even though it's going to make my life more difficult. And right now, it would really help if I sought ways to make my life easier. Because I love my listeners so much, I could just randomly assign these 10 listeners one of the two prizes we're giving away. Just pick five who get the dog book, pick five who get the Karasmaki book. But even though I'm not as big of a dog guy as you are, I I don't really know which one I'd rather own. And I imagine some of our listeners, some of our winners, maybe aren't sure, or they might in fact have a very clear choice. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to at least try to make everybody happy. If you were one of the winners we just announced, email us back, feedback at filmspotting.net, claim your prize, give us your mailing address, and tell us which one of the two you would prefer, The World According to Aki Karasmaki or Almost All the Dogs of Aki Karasmaki. If it works out, amazing. Everything aligns, stars align, Josh, and all is right with the world. If it doesn't, then I'll just end up picking them at random. Sorry. As long as we don't send the dog postcards to a cat person. That that we want to avoid at all costs. <laughs> yeah. Let us know if you're a cat person and you definitely do not want the dog book. Again, claim your prize. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Quick note about our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. They are in the midst of their Miyazaki in Wonderland pairing. Actually, part two should be available right now where they are talking about Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron, pairing it with his 2001 Spirited Away. Cannot wait to dig into those episodes once I'm done completely processing The Boy and the Heron myself. That's The Next Picture Show. It's available every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's get to Masker Theater, or at least reveal a winner. I, I don't. I don't think in a show where we're talking about the best performances of the year, anyone wants yeah. you and I to try anything we like solely that. Not at all. This is the part of the show where we perform a scene. You get a chance to win a film spotting prize. A couple weeks back, we did massacre this scene. Listen, I'm in town in a real estate deal, closing one night. I got five stops to make. Flex signatures, see some friends, and then I got a 6 a.m. out of LAX. Why don't you hang with me? Oh, the car's not for hire, man. That's against regs. Regulations? Yeah. These guys don't pay you sick leave. How much you pull down a shift? Oh. How much? 350, Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll make it 600. Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx in 2004's Collateral there. Written by Stuart Beattie, directed by Michael Mann, that massacre was part of episode 945 when we reviewed and got into some spoilers on David Fincher's The Killer. So why that scene from Collateral? Here's Troy in Orem, Utah. I came to film spotting by way of Blank Check. Thanks for that note. Thank you, Blank Check. I can't make the kinds of connections that a lot of these freaks can. Those are our listeners. But I would guess the connection is that Collateral and The Killer both have for higher killers with bug nut hair slash hat choices. <laughs> I, I, I don't know that we were going that route, but no. it turns out that Troy's not the only one who wants to make a comment about the hair and makeup in at least one of these films. All right, here's Debs from Lafayette, California. The clincher was Fox's character's name changed to Ray Charles. I'll admit I had to look up the Joel 
Goodson, Risky Business Reference, despite your recentish Sacred Cow review. The obvious link to this week's show is the hired killer character. The most tenuous link I can muster is that Cruz's hair and collateral gives me the same uncanny valley heebie-jeebies as fastbenders in the dreadful Next Goal Wins. And Cy, it was YTT and Fastbender. I really wanted to like it. I've only seen the trailer for Next Goal Wins, and I'm with Debs on Fastbender's hair. I yeah. can't abide it. little disturbing. Here's Jeremy L. The most obvious connection I can point out is that both Collateral and The Killer are pop philosophical action thrillers. Both Tom Cruise's character and Michael Fassbender's have a particular knack for talking slash thinking about the nature of crime, death, and fate, and both of them turn in performances that are against their typical type, Cruise, more so. More tangential connections to that episode, Josh. Here's where the fun stuff always happens. We talked about Ruffalo. Turns out he plays a supporting part in Collateral. Or at least I'm I'm gonna have to believe Jeremy on that. I, I have totally no forgot that of that occurring. He says he appears, of course, in the MCU as Bruce Banner slash Hulk, seen alongside Brie Larson's Captain Marvel. In some multiverse strand, I'm sure Michael Fassbender's Magneto is cheering them on from the sidelines, Jeremy <laughs> oh, says. We'll get there at some point, I'm sure. <laughs> the writer of Collateral also co-wrote Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, which notably stars Johnny Depp. Speaking of highly publicized court battles that led everyone to debate the subjective nature of truth and justice, I guess that's an anatomy of a fall reference. I'm Josh? thinking so. Yep. Yep. Okay. I'm sure I could go on, but I'll spare you for now, he says. I think Jeremy is one of those freaks that Troy is talking about. And mm -hmm. we love you for it, Jeremy. Here's Rob M. from Vancouver. This one took about 0.1 seconds for me to get collateral. This movie gets in my brain every once in a while, and I have to watch it, or I'll just keep thinking about it until I do. It has so many dreamlike moments watching the coyotes in the street, and the score leans into it. There are so many movies set in New York where wankery film critics, sorry fellas, love to say, oh, the city is another character, but that is rarely the case in L.A., but here I feel it. Uh-oh, now I'm thinking about it. Be back in two hours. No need to apologize, Rob, when it doesn't apply to us. You don't have to say you're sorry. Scott Lentz in Los Angeles says, I thought I recognized the scene, but changing Jamie Foxx's character's name to Ray is what sealed it. The key connection is, of course, movies about hitmen where the job goes awry. I would also consider Fincher and Mann a connection as both our directors considered auteurs with distinct visual styles and a reputation for perfectionism, whose films often focus on male protagonists working on either side of the law. I don't write in very often, so I'm thankful for an excuse. I've been listening for almost 10 years and have been a family member since the beginning of the Patreon. I love the show and we'll see you in January at the rap party. Yeah. Thank you, nice, Scott. Scott. Can't wait. Hope to see many of you there. Collateral, a film that I'm on the record as saying I think is overrated. I've only seen it once. The rare Michael Mann film that doesn't do much for me, but Josh... I'm in the minority there, at least among our freakish listeners, because, well, they tell me they love it, as many of those listeners just did. And also, the most entered Massacre Theater we've had probably the entire calendar year 2023. I don't know. That that collateral opinion sounds a little wankery to me, Adam. Might, it might want actually. You might want to try to fix that. <laughs> Fair. Reach in to that brimming film spotting hat and pick out the winner. Our winner is Bill Craig, who says he's in cold Minneapolis, Minnesota. You know, it, it's quite warm here today, anyway, where we're at in the Midwest, Josh. I, I didn't even wear a coat around today, but Minneapolis, 
It's another thing entirely. Congratulations, Bill. Email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your film spotting t-shirt, or you can have a tote bag. Or if you're not already a family member, you can get a trial membership. Massacre Theater will return in 2024 and feels a bit more like a threat than a promise, but <laughs> we'll we'll go with it and say that we we have good intentions. We always do. Storm, it's uh well it's powerful. <laughs> so we need to be quiet for a while. It's good for the crops, that's for sure. Just be still. We get back to our performances of 2023 with that great scene from Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, Lily Gladstone, and Leonardo DiCaprio, both among the nominees for their lead performances in the Chicago Film Critics Association Awards. We're going to start with Best Actor, and Josh, those contenders are Leonardo DiCaprio, Paul Giamatti for The Holdovers, Killian Murphy, Oppenheimer, Andrew Scott, All of Us Strangers, Orteo Yu, Past Lives. How did the CFCA do in this category compared to your list, Josh? I'm more aligned. This time around, actually, share three of these. Three of the ones I nominated made the final ballot. Tail You from Past Lives, Andrew Scott from All of Us Strangers, and Killian Murphy from Oppenheimer. Uh, we already touched on one of the others that I nominated, Jason Schwartzman for Asteroid City. Uh, again, just see him such a pair with Scarlett Johansson. Had to nominate them both. And then my other sort of wild card here, he went on early in the year and didn't get bumped off. So he was on my ballot. Dave Bautista in Knock at the Cabin, a movie that I wasn't entirely sold on, liked a lot about it. And he was by far the best thing, just knowing how to use that gargantuan body, um, drawing suspense from it, and yet using a soft voice to kind of counter that. I just loved what he was doing there. I love to see uh, an actor I've admired in different ways surprise me um, and show show new potential. So he did make my final ballot. But yeah, to go back to the ones that, um, that I shared in common, um, we talked a fair amount about Killian Murphy when we reviewed Oppenheimer. Um, I even think I had some issues with the earlier parts of the performance, but now standing away months, just the work he does with those eyes cannot be denied. Yes. It's, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I don't want to say, I, I, I didn't want to be like, but they're just his eyes. I mean, what's no, it, it is how he's using them. And of course how the camera is capturing them. So, so he did make the final cut for me, Andrew Scott. I mean, I, maybe we don't want to talk too much about all of us strangers at this point. He landed my number two performance of the year. I'll say that for now. Um, and we can maybe get into it more next week. I'm curious, Adam, there was an exchange I saw go by on Slack between you and Sam that I didn't quite understand, figured I'll ask you now. Tao in Past Lives, he was my favorite performance of the year, got my number one vote here. Uh, I just think, you know, that he's a painfully pining romantic figure in this film. Um, I go back to how he looks at um, Nora, the other character, the, this woman he's had this lifelong um, yearning for. 
I think about how he awkwardly stands in that park when he finally makes it to New York City waiting for her to arrive. Um, he doesn't know what to do with his posture. He he looks like the, the boy who first met her, even though now he's ostensibly this grown, mature man. Um, I love the performance. Were you suggesting it didn't work for you or you didn't understand why he was in this category? Is that what? Yeah, I think. I think that's where Sam was going. He's okay. the one who made that comment after seeing past lives. And I think he was surprised, maybe at least initially, that he is in the lead. In the lead. Got it, got it. And okay. not supporting. And I was agreeing with that. Now, the more I think about that film, I think you can make the case that he is a co-lead along with Greta Lee, though clearly the movie is more from her perspective. You also have the John Majaro character, who's her husband in that film, who is among those 14 I listed as supporting actor yeah, he's performances great. this year that I had a lot of respect for. So I think that's all it was. I know Sam, or I believe Sam, based on other things he said, is a fan of that performance, and I am too. Did it make your, your final yeah, five? Just, just on the outside looking mm. in. So I had two two departures from those five that the CFCA settled on and they were DiCaprio and you, but both of those two were in my six through eight along with Michael Fassbender for the killer. This is one Josh where I didn't have a bunch of actors competing for that five. I mean, I liked Harrison Ford a lot in dial of destiny, caught up with American fiction and like the work Jeffrey Wright is doing in that film, maybe more than the the film itself. I did like Joel Edgerton and Master Gardner more than you did. And I think that Jorma Tomila in Sisu is doing some very, very restrained, but fun work. The two I nominated instead of DiCaprio and you were the aforementioned Jason Schwartzman. I'm not going to separate him and Scarlett Johansson either. And you know who else I'm not going to separate? The only other couple I think I enjoyed watching on screen more. Julia Binoche with Benoit Magamel in The Taste of Things. If you have a chance to see this film, and I have to look up the release dates, I don't think it's actually coming out theatrically in the U.S., maybe until, until February, unfortunately. But Magamel is someone... I thought I had never seen on screen before. Josh, I had to write him in, by the way, to the CFCA ballot. He he wasn't in there. I don't think Vinosh was either, but he's been acting since he was 14. He's the student in The Piano Teacher, the Michael Hanukkah film from 2001. He was in his mid-20s then. He's in his late 40s now. The subtitle of this film or the alternate title of The Taste of Things is La Passion de Dodan Bofin. He's... Dodan. He's this gourmet. He's kind of this culinary legend. And the movie's set in France in 1885, and everyone reveres his opinion. And from what you see in the film, you understand it, his ability to discern taste and his taste, his incredible sophistication when it comes to French cuisine. The, the generosity of his character and the performance itself, technically he's in this patriarchal sort of position of power because the Binoche character is employed by him. She's the chef that works for him. But I think both Magamel and Dodan serve her ultimately. And no, no pun intended there. There's just a warmth and sensitivity to that performance. I, I want to go see other movies that, that Magamel is in. Another one he's in from this year that I know has gotten a lot of attention, but I haven't seen yet is Pacifiction. He's apparently in that film. The three that I was aligned with 
were Giamatti, Murphy, and Scott. And those were my top three descending from three to one. Giamatti for the holdovers. Love that film. I've seen a couple people, and it really is only a couple, on Letterboxd in response to my review, criticized the movie a little bit and his performance, saying it's a little bit predictable, unsurprising, the kind of thing Giamatti, it seems like, can just crank out and do in his sleep. I'm going to counter that and say maybe Giamatti is an actor who just makes it look so damn easy that you can overlook the immense craft on display. I never felt. I never felt that watching this film. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I love the holdovers, too, and I do think he's great in it. I understand. I had somewhat of a similar reaction while watching it is it's a familiar part. It's a familiar persona. I don't want to hold that against him, though. And if I think about individual moments like the one when he at the very well, I don't want to spoil it because it's still in theaters. But when he calls back a moment between himself and the student played by Dominic Sessa in just one line and tells him something. The delivery of that is something is the way he handles that line, which is a great scripted line from a credible screenplay. We might get to our screenplay categories in our bonus show on other voting we did. Um, But yeah, the way he delivers that makes the case your supports your case. I think in bringing something that he's not just doing that in his sleep. There was an incident when I was at Harvard with my roommate. And? She accused me of copying from his senior thesis. Plagiarizing. Uh, Well, did you? No, he stole from me. The blue-blooded pricks family had allies on the faculty. I mean, their last name is on a library, for Christ's sake. So he accused me in order to sanitize his treachery, and uh, they threw me out. So you got kicked out of Harvard for cheating? No, I got kicked out of Harvard for hitting him. (laughs) You hit him? What, like punched him out? No, I hit him with a car. Killian Murphy, you mentioned those eyes. We almost literally processed that entire movie through those eyes and the burden that he's carrying. I want to rewatch Oppenheimer for many reasons, but honestly, maybe the main one, just as I keep coming across clips on social media this time of year, the main one is just to watch him and to listen to him. I love what he does with his voice as Oppenheimer in that film. And then there at number one, you said it was your number two overall performance of the year, Andrew Scott, All yeah. of Us Strangers? Yeah, after Tail You. On the IndieWire critics vote, where you only get to vote for one performance. You pick 10 films, we have to pick one performance. Right. <laughs> Male, female, lead, supporting, doesn't matter. For the longest time, as I was contemplating that ballot, I thought, I thought it's Gosling. It's actually Gosling. Mm, And maybe mm. it still should be. I could make the case for that. Then I saw anatomy of a fall and thought I'm going to jump ahead here a little bit, but I thought maybe it's Sandra Huller. Maybe that's the performance of the year. And then I saw all of us strangers and realized that it it's Andrew Scott. I'm thrilled. Of course, then Josh, that he made the ballot. I'm thrilled to see the LA film critics over the weekend have him in their top four. He was a runner-up in their lead performance category, along with Jeffrey Wright. And in that IndieWire critics vote, he came in at number eight. So I appreciate that other people are appreciating his work as you are, and yet there was this little part of me that was really hoping somehow only I noticed how incredible he is in Andrew High's All of Us Strangers. Like, this was going to be my revelation, and it was going to be just just this little thing that me and Andrew Scott had. And it turns out 
everybody else is onto how good he is. I'm going to employ here. I'm not going to get into the film. You said maybe we'll just hold off a little bit. But about the performance, I'm going to employ a little bit of what we here on Film Spotting call Van Perbole in honor of our esteemed producer, Sam Van Hallgren. I think this performance is one of the most remarkable screen performances I've ever seen. And the reason why I emphasize screen there is because it's so subtle and small, yet so vulnerable and emotionally expressive. He just understands so innately how to act for the camera and rely on the camera. And in this case, there's an abundance of close-ups. So you really have to know how to be in control of that performance and and to be minimal, but to not ever be boring. And boy, is he never boring. And there's nothing ultimately that feels small about the performance. It's just so perfectly calibrated for the camera, for High's camera and High's close-ups. And the the balance of the internal and the external than we get with that camera was something that I was so I was so moved by. And to go back a little bit to to Charles Melton and Teo Yu, another thing Sam mentioned to me in Slack is he said he was listening to an interview with Todd Haynes. He was talking about casting Charles Melton in May December. And in his audition, what Haynes attached to is that he was able to see Joe the grown man and Joe the kid simultaneously. And Sam says, that's so right. It's like the magic trick of that film and that performance. And Sam thought it was true of Teo Yu as well. I think it's also a key part of the magic of Andrew Scott's performance is never, and and obviously that's central to the film for those who have seen it. And many of you haven't because it's not going to be released here in the U.S. theatrically until I think Christmas Day. But like those other two great performances and great characters, Scott in All of Us Strangers is someone who simultaneously always embodies this this older lonely vulnerable man and and the boy he once was yeah i had a phrase pop into my mind just just yesterday and this would have been i don't know a couple days after watching all of us strangers that i had to jot down in my notes for the movie and it applies, I was thinking of it in terms of the movie, but it applies to what you're talking about in terms of Scott's performance. And and it was devastation without manipulation. I think mm-hmm. I think that is yeah. what this movie manages, but you're right. The same the same thing is going on in Scott's performance, which a degree one way or the other would throw that off, and that the manipulation then would become apparent. And and that the movie, I don't feel, ever falls into that trap, nor does the performance, is is kind of one of its miracles. But you know what? Despite all that, when I filled out the Underwire thing and had to do the same thing and pick a performance of the year, uh, I didn't go that way. Uh, I went with someone in the best actress category, so maybe we okay. should maybe we should Let's move it. there. Uh, it's it's someone you mentioned actually, Sandra Huller in Anatomy of a Fall. But let me give you the nominees for the Chicago Film Critics, the final nominees in that category. She is among them, alongside Lily Gladstone from Killers of the Flower Moon, Natalie Portman, May December, Margot Robbie for Barbie, and Emma Stone for Poor Things. I'm assuming, Adam, based on what you said about Huller, you did nominate her and gave her a vote as well. 
Yeah, she's definitely there. And I guess I'll try to build up the suspense a little bit, even though there's there's none. Of those five that were mentioned, this is another category, Josh, where I had four of them on my ballot. My only departure was Margot Robbie. And she's wonderful. And she shouldn't be overlooked while everyone is praising Gosling and the technical achievement that Barbie is. I'm overlooking her in this case because I rated Michelle Williams' performance in Kelly Reichert's showing up just one spot ahead of her. I had Robbie at six. That film showing up was my number one at the halfway point. And if it's any indication how good a year this really has been, that film may not have a spot among my top 10. And that could be due to some recency bias, Josh, but one of those cases where there are just so many good ones to consider, I did want to make sure that I gave some love to Williams here. Again, aligned on the other four, though, Gladstone, Portman, Stone, Huller, and my final vote was Emma Stone third, Natalie Portman second, and Sandra Huller first. You could easily jumble those and put Portman or Stone first. I talked about Stone quite a bit in Poor Things last week. I'm not surprised at all that, if I remember right, Josh, she topped the IndieWire vote. She was the lead performance of the year as voted on by all those critics that they surveyed. Here I am. I'm going to quote Sam again. He asked today when the poor things Barbie think pieces are coming. And of course he's right. We didn't get into it, but they're they're both creations, those characters. They're both dolls in their own ways. They're both idealized or could be fetishized by men. And they both have to go out into the world to discover their femininity. So if if someone hasn't written it yet, there you go. Pitch it. See if you can make some freelance money off of it. I do love that performance. But I've got Portman ahead of it, again, at two. And I said last week that I'd wait to mention the specific line. So you said you thought you had an idea which one it was. The line I singled out is the the single line delivery of the year. What's your guess for which line from that film I'm going with? I think in the context of our conversation, I was thinking um, this is just what adults do. Yeah, it's it's close. That's That's essentially what she says. The line of the movie for me, and here... As you were saying with the holdovers, great screenplay, and the film is filled with great performers providing great line deliveries. But the line of the movie is the moment when Portman's character does say to another character, this is just what grownups do. It's a great line because I can't think of a more succinct way to express exactly what that character would and should say in that moment. It just feels brutally honest and and completely truthful. Then you think about, of course, what the what the line actually means and what the phrasing means for the character she's speaking to, how that connects to the, the central conundrum of the movie. But it is the delivery, Josh, that cemented what I already thought was probably a career best for Portman and, and cemented it for me as one of the best performances of the year. If you were an actor, and you're you're doing your scene work. You're you're working up your beat analysis of all these moments in your lines, and you had to describe the tone of that line, what your character needs to convey there, what it could convey, what you want to to seek. There's a lot of different words you could use. I'll give you three. They're similar but distinct: patronizing, dismissive, derisive, and a really good performer could could portray all three of those things with distinct variations. You could really lean into certain words. Your tone could definitely be fairly harsh. Again, any good actor would 
give you at least 15 different takes on that one sentence. And they'd probably all be good and usable in the film. And Portman, she almost completely flattens it. She says it so plainly and casually, like that line has to be. It, it can only be rendered that way. And there's nothing patronizing or dismissive or derisive about how she delivers it. It's just matter of fact. And yet the trick is, it's all of those things and so much more. Even, even saying it's matter of fact or that she flattens the line, that kind of suggests that maybe it could be this very monotone reading or very dry it is neither of those things. And again, just encapsulates so much and is so, so suggestive, but with such a quote unquote, simple line reading. I, I just don't know actually how she pulls that off. That, that was when, that was when I knew this, this had to be there among my best performances of the year. Yeah. I think it, it's a matter of meeting the material exactly where it's at and not trying to do more than it's trying to do because it's not necessary in this particular context then then it would not just be overplayed but somehow you would lose by emphasizing say the cruelty there's another word that could apply by emphasizing the cruelty you would dissipate it a little bit um, you would take out some of the sting that that nonchalance in a way she's offering does yeah. give it in that moment all of that said and maybe I don't know, Josh. Is it is it too late in this episode, or or maybe too late in the history of this show for me to say that awards are silly, and I don't know why we engage in this activity? I mean, <laughs> because trying to pick those three, it's crazy. But we're getting to talk about all these. This is I the know, point. That's right? true. We're getting to talk me, about all these. Stone, yeah, Stone, Portman, and then after all that about Natalie Portman, I still picked Sandra Huller. From Anatomy of My Fall is my favorite performance of the year. And I know you agree with that. So maybe rather than me explaining it, we see the character, we see that performance very similarly. Tell me why and tell me about some of your other nominees. Yeah, I'm actually not going to. I would point folks back to our Anatomy of a Fall review and spoiler talk for that because we we did dig into her performance there. I just I just think the sincerity, basically the sincerity she brings to that part of this wife and mother under trial um, is aching to watch, but she never begs for any audience sympathy. And and by not doing that, that's when the the doubt, I think I talked about how that allows the doubt to creep in, which is what that movie is all about, right? Is, is trying to debate and figure out and parse the truth. If she went for our sympathy in any way, none of that mm -hmm. would work. So it's the crucial, her performance is the crucial building block of everything that movie is doing. And that's not to, you know, in these other categories, Anatomy of a Fall, I, I nominated in many of them from screenplay to direction, you know, all this stuff is at play, but I do think Huller's performance um, is the foundational block there. I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm sorry, but I don't know. You, you, you come here, okay, with your, maybe your opinion and you tell me who, Samuel was and what we were going through. But what you say is just, uh, it is just a little part of the whole situation, you know. I mean, sometimes, sometimes a couple is kind of a chaos and everybody is lost, no? 
it's not as showy a performance as I think either Portman or Stone ultimately. But as we did talk about in our review, the way she inhabits, this is another case, like you said, Josh, of meeting the material where, where you need to as a performer, she inhabits all of the contradictions of that character, but it's not because it ever feels like she's playing those contradictions. It's you just really who she feel is. Like she's just she's she's inhabiting the humanity yeah. of, of that character. I know that probably sounds a little bit pretentious, but with Hooler in this case, that that's definitely the only accurate way I can describe it. And she's not a character. She's not a woman who is going to change who she is because of these conditions that the situation she finds herself in, and that's that's something that is also being mirrored in the performance. You know, there's a, there's a bravery slash stubbornness to it um, that, that that movie absolutely needs as well. So yeah, my, my favorite performance of the year there. Now my, my second favorite performance is one that didn't make the final ballot, but I'm just going to continue to lobby for the big screen talent, intelligence, humor, and charms of Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who reteaming with Nicole Holof Center in You Hurt My Feelings After Enough Said um, gives an equally wonderful, though very different, I think, performance. Just, you know, this is essentially, this movie has a sitcom premise. It basically does. Um, so you figure, yeah, of course, Louis Dreyfus uh, is going to be able to kill this. But then she also meets the authentic ache that every Hall of Center film has as well without losing that, those, that comic chops. I mean, the pacing and the patter necessary for a sitcom, it's all there, but she also layers her line deliveries with a real world naturalism, um, then still hits the punchlines. So many punch, great punchlines in this movie that I, I don't even want to say punchlines because they're the kind of punchlines that actually happen in conversation with your friends, with your family, people you know well. Um, but she manages to get, just squeeze them for every ounce of laughter possible. I think particularly, you know, so many moments, but one when she's with Michaela Watkins as her sister and here she's immediately processing the the premise of this, the movie, right? Overhearing her husband speak disparagingly about her latest book. He loves you more than life itself. What does that have to do with anything I'm here? I'm saying that he doesn't love your book, okay? He doesn't love your book. I mean, who cares? Do you understand? I've been working on this book for two years, uh-huh. right? I've given him like a million drafts to read. And every time he reads it, every single time he tells me how much he loves it. Every single time! Because he just doesn't like, you know, get it or whatever. And now my hands have gone numb. Yeah, for a, real. Okay, can you take a deep breath? I am breathing, Sarah. All right, would you just, you're gonna talk to him. Well, that's a joke. I am never gonna be able to look him in the face ever again. Okay, that's over. So yeah, I hope I hope Hall of Center and Louis Dreyfus make ten more films together. I'll be there. She got my number two vote. And then let's talk a little bit more, just a little bit more about Natalie Portman in May, December, because I think I'm with you from the performances I've seen of her, probably her best. And going back to this tension I talked about in terms of Julianne Morris, Gracie, that they share, you know, in this relationship, Portman is sort of this Cheshire cat but you know she's got these claws and she's just holding them behind her back. You don't trust her for an instant, even as she's very politely interrogating Gracie about her past. What I love is the way 
she's she's almost wielding her stardom like this scalpel. Like like she doesn't she doesn't like walk in like a star who who wants all the attention, but when she thinks it'll get her an advantage, she'll let she'll turn up the star wattage just a tad. And and I love how Portman brings that to the performance. And again, the reason I love more is the way she meets that. And then Gracie like turns up her wattage. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. no, I, I'm the real star here. And seeing Portman be willing to let that happen. Like the generosity between these two actors working at the top of their game, never making it feel like a competition, even though that's exactly what it is for their characters. I mean, that's just a a miraculous, again, why I talk about these as one of the great screen pairings of the year, um, a miraculous feat for them to pull off. So Portman, um, despite all that, I ranked her number three. I did have Lily Gladstone from Killers of the Flower Moon. I talked about those eyes that she gives to Molly, the deep sadness you see in them, this, the combination of knowledge and grief that she holds as a character that's crucial to that character. My fifth nomination, bit of a wild card, Io Adebri in Bottoms was so hysterical. And I don't know if it's just carryover from her brilliance in The Bear, but working here, another great pairing, very much owes a lot of what she's doing to her co-star, Rachel Sennett, who is hilarious here. But what I liked about Adebri is the just the mumbling and deflecting demeanor she has, and she slips jokes in. So many jokes in this movie when you least expect them and without try, it's almost like she's not apologizing for the jokes, but that you get a sense there's a part of her character who doesn't want anyone to hear them. And then another part of her character who can't help but blurting them out. And so she kind of slides them in there and it's, it's this comic presence that's so unique. Um, and she's just wonderful in bottoms. So always looking, always looking to push the comic comedic performances up during awards time. And I think Adebri gives a great comic performance from 2023. You know what? I'm good. Cause it's not going to happen for me. If it's not happening here, then it's definitely not happening at Emerson. Okay. I'm done trying to sew my damn no. oats. I'm packing up my vagina and I'm match you. That's the only hope for me. No. It's man the two man. And cause he's gay and fearless, he's probably gonna f- me without protection. Then I'm gonna get pregnant. We're gonna have to join a church. He'll be the gay pastor. My whole life's f- And yeah, sure. Those are our favorite lead and supporting performances of 2023. If you'd like to view those lists, just go to filmspotting.net slash lists. And if you have a favorite leader supporting performance you'd love to share with us, we'd love to hear it. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. That's also where you can send us any feedback about the show because Josh, that is our show. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. The current Film Spotting poll has us asking you to name your 2023 film of the year as of whenever you choose to answer the poll. Sounds like if you're a big Asteroid City fan, it could use some help. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener supported. You can join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com for as little as five bucks a month. You can listen to the show early and ad free. Plus, you'll get a weekly newsletter, monthly bonus shows, and access to the entire Film Spotting archive. Out in wide release this weekend, Wonka obviously didn't come up otherwise on this episode. That's because, well, Maybe it's not deserving, but it's really because neither of us have caught up with it yet. Hope to remedy that soon. Next week on the show, it is our big, glorious, 
end of year roundtable, the top 10 films of 2023, myself, Josh, Michael Phillips, Mariah Gates, plus star-studded cast of voicemails, many critics and other friends of the show, Josh, sharing their number one films of the year. Tune in. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavandero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.